Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. It's an honor to be here. Uh, it's a pleasure. Um, so I'll just say uh, the students in my class at NYU uh, Abu Dhabi, they're, they're long-suffering and uh, very smart and uh, curious. And um, it says great things about Abu Dhabi and, and this university. Okay, so our confession. Um, I, uh, I barely speak English. English is my second language at best. Um, so the kinds of papers that I write are like this, uh, which is actually related to something I'm going to come back to. Um, and it's related to things that have been in the news. Um, it's, it's about entropy, and it's, which, it's a measure of discrepancy between two models, maybe one that's really governing the world and what's in your head. I'll come back to that. Um, but I was asked not to use my um, first language, but to speak, try to speak English tonight. So, so here goes. Okay. Because so I'm going to talk about U.S. Uh, tariff and trade policies uh, then and now. And I am not an expert on this. I've done no research on it. Um, absolutely zero. And uh, so I'm going to give you a book review. And I tell you, I'm going to tell you one uh, book to read. So if you were a, a high official in, in the United States, I would, I, would, I would recommend that you read this book. Um, it's economics and and uh, I think it's a combination of economics, history, um, and political science at its best. It draws on all of those. It draws on data. It has a point of view, which I'm going to tell you. So here's the book. It's called Clashing Over Commerce. It's by Douglas Irwin at, um, at Dartmouth. And it's a history of U.S. trade policy from the start, almost from the start. Come back to that. From 1776 to today. And um, so I'm going to give you a book review, um, an unauthorized book review of how I read this book. Um, it's my take. So part of this is um, projection. Uh, this, I'm not going to tell you what Irwin said. I'm going to tell you what, how I read Irwin. So it's going to be a distortion. <coughs> it's kind of inevitable. Okay, so that's where I'm going to go. Okay, so, um, okay, so, and I, okay, so, and I'm going to mention one other, um, great historian that I've been reading recently. You might be able to figure out why I'm reading it. His, his name is Richard Hofstetter um, from Columbia. Um, most of you are too young to remember him, but he was an outstanding historian in the 40s, 50s, and 60s in the United States. Everybody had his, book, had his books in political science and uh, history when I was a kid, when I was your age. Okay, so he wrote a number of books. And one is called The Paranoid Style in American Politics. And it's a history about uh, styles of presentation that almost start at the beginning. And, and the reason I mention that now is guess why? Okay, so he talks about this style and how it pre was present in various historical episodes on both the left and the right at various times. Um, okay, so that's one thing. Then the other thing is, um, in that book and some others, uh, uh, Richard Hofstetter identified two styles of 
actually you could call it political science analysis. Um, and one is that you assumed that citizens, people, were governed by what he calls interest politics. Uh, they have basically economic interests uh, that uh, might be in conflict with other people's economic interests, and they pursue those. Um, and Richard Hosser implicitly has, um, almost explicitly, he has the view of rational expectations. And what I mean by that is he thinks that everybody who's acting has a common understanding of the way the world is put together. It's, it's not that their views of the world differ. It's that their interests differ. So conflicts originate not in their beliefs about the world. They have common beliefs. Keep using the word common. Um, they don't have different models of the world. Um, um, they have different interests. That, he calls that interest politics. And he, if, you, if you read his book, he runs through that. And uh, I'm going to do that today. My whole talk and, my, and, and, and Douglas Irwin's book is all about interest politics. It's, there's no misunderstandings. Okay, by the way, at this university, there's some of the leading research uh, about rational expectations. So again, what rational expectations is, um, sometimes if you, if you go read Wikipedia, they'll say it's a right-wing doctrine. It's a right-wing doctrine. But it actually isn't. It's communism. And what I mean by that, there's a communism of models. There's one model of the world it's in everybody's head. It's in the head of whoever generates the data, and it's in the head of the analyst. So if you think of a lot of political economy or, or our colleagues in political science, that's what they do. Okay, and that's what I'm going to do today, just put my cards on the table. Okay, so then Richard Hofstetter said there's another way to do it, and that's called identity or social politics. And that is, I will vote against my economic interests uh, because I have other uh, interests. It's my race or it's my hatred of certain groups. Um, and uh, I will vote that way. And he gives, he gives documents of uh, where that force was present. But that's not going to be present today in my talk. Okay. And another thing that's not going to be present is that which is a possibility, Hofstadter doesn't talk about this, is different people have different views about the way the world's put together. Um, and if you want to be a social scientist and study, maybe that was correct. You know, um, maybe uh, the people that administered um, the Soviet regime and, and the communist Chinese regime before Deng Xiaoping had really a different understanding about the way the world works than, uh, than either nature did or the way other people did. So that's a different view. It's not going to be my view today. Okay, so here we go. So having said that, that's the methodology. So here's, here's, the, basic, here's the basic premise. International trade is good for most people. For most people. Where does that come from? Um, came before this, Adam Smith, the great economist and philosopher, he noted that the division of labor was a good thing. 
specialization is a good thing technologically. If if uh, if if you do one thing all day, you get better at it. If you have to do ten things, um, jack of all trades, uh, you're not very productive in any of them. So his basic insight is that division of labor is good, but how can you have a division of labor in a social in a society? Well, you have to have a bunch of people trading with each other. So one person. I have to specialize in whatever I do, taking out the garbage in my house and squashing bugs, uh, doing a little teaching. That's what I do. Um, and then somebody else specializes in something else, um, making movies and so on. And then we trade. Okay, so now how do we trade? So, well, international trade is good. There's opponents to trade. What are the opponents to trade? Distance. Physical distance, distance in other senses, limitations of information, distrust. Um, if I'm going to tr- time, I'm going to produce something now, and it's going to take me a while. I'm going to trade it to some person in France. It's not going to get there for a while. So there, there's, there's, there's distance, and, and the trust is, uh, how do I know he's going to pay for it? How do I know he's not going to change his mind? How do I know he's going to say it's time to come up? And I come up and he says, ha ha. You know, so it's all a matter of trust. Okay, so trust is a big thing. So how do you, how do you build trust? Okay, so all of those things, those are threats to the division of labor. So trades, and trade is good for most people, but not for everybody. So if you're a very inefficient producer, in the United States, say of iron ore, in my old state, northern Minnesota, you're very inefficient. Uh, trade's not good for you because the industry is making monopoly profits because it's the only producer of iron ore in the United States. And the workers there, they're in unions that are, have sweetheart deals with the managers. They share the rents and they do harm to the rest of the producers in the United States. Um, so most people in the United States are hurt by that lack of free trade, but some are helped. So the, the, the thing is that uh, trade is good for most people, but not for everybody. Okay, so why is international trade good? Well, it's good for the same reason that it was good for trade when transportation got cheaper in the 19th century because of canals, railroads. When communication got cheaper because of the telegraph, um, radio eventually, um, internet, stuff like that. So it's good because it makes markets broader and it extends the division of labor. That's the deal. So when you extend the division of labor, um, it's a, it's a, the, 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 which is what historians study, it's an evolutionary process that's destructive and creative. My father spent his whole life in a job that no longer exists. It's done by a not very smart artificial intelligence agent. Um, that's what my father spent his whole life doing. Okay, so, um, so consumers of the product that he produced are better off, and he's okay, um, but um, nobody's going to do what he did. Okay, so... 
Here's the impediments to trade. These are the enemies of Adam Smith. I'll tell you, I'll tell you. I've already told you some. Distrust. Wars. Transportation costs. Information costs of various kinds. Um, tariffs. President Trump doesn't like to say this. Tra President Trump this morning said that he is tariff man. Um, um, T. They, the Wall Street Journal said T man. T tariff is another word for tax on your domestic residence. So, tax man. Okay, and then there's also non tariff barriers. There's not a tariff, but there's an import quota. You can't import unless you get uh, permission from the government. Okay. So in the 19th, so, um, so I'm going to talk about uh, the impediments to trade tariffs and non-trade barriers, and I'm going to talk about um, the history of them in the United States. It's going to be a broad history. And, and I'm a time series econometrician, so I'm going to do trends, long trends. And this, the, actually, there's not many cycles. There's long trends that you can spot. I'm going to take the long-term view, and um, and actually, there's going to there's going to end this is end up, this is going to end up being optimist, and maybe this is going to be a a, a Voltaire uh, a foolish optimist, but we'll see. But you don't live to be as old as I am, and have as much fun unless you're an optimist. So um, what I'm talking about is going to prevail. That long-term trend. Think about that long-term trend, and you should ask if you're a time series econometrician. Is there a break in that trend? And if so, what caused the break? So, <clears throat> I have friends who are more than time series econometricians. They're political scientists or economists who do, who do uh, so it's called political economy, which is what Adam Smith was on to and his pal David Hume. So here's, here's what I, uh, so for me, forgive me, not, okay. Not only do I not speak English, I'm not a political scientist. So I'm not practicing. I am practicing political science without a license. Okay, so here's, here's how I, here's how I hear, hear my political scientist colleagues. Actually, in the next room at NYU Abu Dhabi. They're in the next room, and they're filling the blackboard with equations and graphs. Okay, so here's, here's what I think they're saying. When you see an outcome in the world, there's a first question you should ask. Who wanted that outcome? In a social situation, who wanted it? And then, the second question is, well, if you think that it's going to change, who do you think wants it to change? That's the whole talk. So when we talk about the history of tariffs, then and now, we're going to ask who wants it and who wants to change it. That's the deal. Is that okay? And notice, with Hofstetter, I'm doing interest politics. Okay. So historic, I'm going to tell you a big trend. And I'll tell you about pre, pre this. Um, since 1945, I'll tell you about before 1945, the United States has been a leader and somewhat of a bully um, um, bringing other advanced countries along. They have steadily reduced tariffs 
and non-tariff barriers to historically low levels. What you have to realize today is tariffs and non-trade barriers are lower than they've ever been. And there's been two big forces for that in the world. Uh, one is the United States playing hardball. I'm going to tell you how this achieved. This was not, this is something that, so now we say, why did this happen? I'm going to say, who wanted it? That's, that's, just, that's, the, that's the way I think about it. That's the way I'm reading uh, Douglas Irwin's book. Okay, so there, I said there were two things, um, two big historically. The United States after World War II, partly because of some stuff that happened before World War II, some lessons that were learned about trade wars in the 1930s. We'll come back, we'll come back to that. People learned a lesson. Um, it's going to take me a little outside of rational expectations, but I'll come to that at the end. Um, so the United States... Uh, lowered its own tariffs and pushed other countries to lower theirs through a, through a process that we'll talk about. Then the, what's, what is the second biggest change in the post-war period? Look at the big picture. It's, what was the big opening up? 1978, Deng Xiaoping, a lifelong communist until then, looked out and he thought that he was using the wrong view of the world before then. Um, there's some very moving stories. And he and his co-leaders led China to open up. It was a completely closed economy, and they opened Chinese borders. They began opening Chinese borders. Um, that was a Chinese decision. So that um, and U.S., those are, the, those are the two broad forces that have brought tariffs to, to low levels. If you want to know what tariffs were in 1978 and earlier in China, they're 100%. Uh, you, you did not import and export with the West. Okay, so think about now. Um, and actually come to my class. And you'll see incredible imports and exports to and from China of the most important and precious resource, which is human capital and brains and information. Okay, so now U.S. history to think about the future. See, there's not I'm just, I'm just saying over and over again, because my talk is really three minutes. Who wants it? That's the deal. So I'm going to use U.S. history to think about the future. So here's the deal. I, want to, I, was, going to, I was going to ask, who wanted those lower trade barriers and freer trade? Didn't just happen. It wasn't because one person wanted them. It was some, something else happened. And then I'm going to ask some people didn't want them. Who opposed them and failed to prevail, and why? Political science teaches this. And now the key question that you should ask, and I'm not going to answer this. Okay. I come from a tradition where you ask me a question, the best you're going to get out of me is I ask you a question back. So here's the question. Has something happened to strengthen the opponents and weaker or change the, the, the minds of the advocates? If you want to know whether the U.S. trade policy is going to change from this historical trend, you have to ask who wants it and, and what happened in the last couple of years to make them change their mind. So, so you read faster than I do. You figure that out. Here we go. So now we're going to talk about this is the dark underword world. It's Adam Smith. These are things that, that would be, if I had colored slides, these are bad. 
these are red or whatever, green. Tools that restrict international trade. There are three tools, three main categories of tools, and they've been used historically. Um, they're tariffs. And what a tariff is, um, it's a tax on imports. It's a tax on American citizens who import goods. That's what it is. The U.S. Constitution says that uh, the United States cannot tax exports. Before the U.S. Constitution, it's a long story, individual states did tax export, exports, but not, before, not, not, not now. It's illegal. It's unconstitutional. So the first thing is tariffs. There's a taxes. T-man. Uh, Taxman. Now, uh, an aside. You have to ask... Like, this is cognitive psychology and pattern recognition. If you go through all of President Trump's treat, tweets, um, they're not consistent. And he knows that. Uh, he, he has to know that. So he says multiple things. I could put together a bunch of uh, tweets to say he's, a, he's F-man, free trade. He said that. He's, he, want, he, said, he said both things. So when, when we say T-man, um, don't, we don't know how to interpret that, and he doesn't want us to know how to interpret it, I don't believe. Okay, so anyway, tariffs. What's the next thing? Subsidies and bounties. And what is that? You want to protect a domestic industry, but you don't want to tax your own citizens directly. So what you do is you subsidize perhaps inefficient local producers. So you, well, you do tax some of your citizens, and you subsidize local production. Okay, so um, various governments do, do this. The United States government does it. Um, the Chinese government does it. Many governments do it. Uh, as a matter of fact, if I, if I make a, um, I don't want to hurt your feelings, French government does it. Okay, that's, that's just, so subsidies. Adam Smith thought these were bad. And what's the last one? Quantitative trade restrictions. I'm not going to subsidize. I'm not going to tax. But what I'm going to say is I'm going to have import quotas. Okay? So I'm just going to have, have rules saying uh, we're, uh, we're only going to uh, export a certain amount. We're only going to import a certain amount. And you've got to get a license to import goods. Guess what? As soon as you created that license, that's a really valuable thing. You created, you generated what my great colleague, former colleague, Ann Kruger, great economist, said, rent-seeking. You created something that's valuable um, and created an activity that's really socially worthless, which is a bunch of people doing things to acquire these import quotas. Okay. So tariffs, I'll just, I'll just tell you, I, I'm a free trader. I, thought, I think Adam Smith got it right. So this is, this is really biased. These are all bad things. Okay. So case study, a little history, just big picture. Um, exhibit A for a country that's used this, poster child A, Argentina. So 115 years ago, Argentina was one of the wealthiest countries in the world. It had a, GD, it had a GNP per capita that's... Uh, Approaching that of the United States, it's equal to Canada and Australia. Okay? In, in the first, 
long story, for various reasons, they decided on an Argentina first policy. Um, and they did it. Uh, tariffs, subsidies and bounties, quantitative trade restrictions. They closed Argentina. We can make cars in Argentina. Division of labor. Argentina is big enough. We'll do it all. So guess what? They went from a GDP per capita about equal to the United States. This is a, my friend Robert Lucas said, you do not want to live in a country that's doing a social experiment. Uh, some of you have, or your parents came from countries that did social experiments, students in my class. Anyway, so they did it. Guess what? They went from a GDP that's comparable to Canada's to a GDP that's about 35 to 40% of Canada's. That's where they are. So that experiment was done. Um, okay. There's another country that's doing it. If you think you want a second chance, um, we can ask the dean to get you a ticket to Venezuela. Uh, you might not be able to get a round trip ticket. Okay. Okay. So, so those are the tools. And my own country, the history of my own country, we've used those tools. So, so those are the tools. What good are they? What are their purposes? Because we want to ask, these tools are going to be used because somebody wants them. So we're going to go, who wants them? Tariffs. Well, they have two uses. One is it's a tax. T-man. Tax. They raise revenues. It's a revenue machine. And when my country started, the United States, that was, the, that was the, basically the only way the federal government could raise revenues. Tariffs. Um, and that's what Alexander Hamilton and George Washington did. When our country started, they imposed tariffs. Why? Because they had some expenditures they wanted to fund. Um, that's one reason. There's another reason. And that is you can prevent competition from abroad. You can, you can protect domestic producers, inefficient producers, by imposing tariffs. Just a piece of slander. Alexander Hamilton, that wasn't the reason he did it. You could see. He didn't like tariffs for protection. He liked tariffs for revenue. And you can read Irwin's book about that. Um, there's a Broadway play um, about Hamilton. And it's a great play, but they got that wrong. Okay. Second thing, subsidies and bounties. Hamilton liked those. So you want to pr promote domestic industries. Um, you give subsidies and bounties. In the history of my own country, and you're very weak on intellectual property protection. The history of my own country in the 19th century is we violated uh, intellectual property rights all over the place. We stole factory plans from Britain. Uh, we didn't copyright novels and so on. We only started protecting intellectual property when we had some to protect. That's the history. Okay. Um, Finally, um, so who wants subsidies and bounties? You want to protect domestic industries. There are various things you want to protect. Uh, Hamilton wanted to do that. And then the final thing, quantitative trade restrictions. This is the thing to look at historically. So why have, what is the main use of quantitative trade restrictions in the United States since World War II? You can ask this. It's been to retaliate against foreign trade restrictions and to put threats. So if you go back and look about this long-term trend, uh, why, how tariffs and trade restrictions in the United States have gone through, you look at the trend, you say it's beautiful, 
uh, and the outcome is beautiful, but you go and look at the process by which it was achieved. And I'll just, I'll just remind you of some history. For someone my age, it's mildly interesting or depressing that most of you weren't born when this stuff happened. So in the, in the, uh, in the, in the 1980s, Japan was viewed as a big threat to the United States. And many of the things that are said about China today were said in the United States. They compete unfairly. They have, they have, they have various trade restrictions, tariffs on U.S. And um, so the, the Carter, the Reagan administrations played hardball with them. And the Bush, the first Bush administration, they played, they threatened um, tariffs and trade restrictions and negotiated really hard. And uh, bilateral negotiations, they... Uh, they were successful in negotiations. Uh, the Japanese and the South Koreans did not reduce their tariffs and eliminate out of the goodness of their hearts. They did it because the United States threatened that, well, we were going to hurt them even if it hurt us. That's the deal. And so there were negotiations about that. Okay, so those are the things. So, so now, okay, well, one thing, who decides this? You could ask who decides. It's a good thing to remind ourselves of. And why is it who decides this? And I'm going to talk about, like, in the United States, um, just talking about my own country. So the ultimate decision makers are U.S. citizens. Those, they're the people whose interests, you know, are going, to are going to answer the who wants question. So producers, those are exporters and importers. They do both. And they produce various things. So example today, there's various producers in the United States who use steel as an input. They don't produce steel, but they take steel and they hammer it into things. They are very upset about the steel and aluminum imports that President Trump imposed. Um, there's workers. They work for exporters and importers. Often their interests are aligned with, with the firms. And then there's consumers. Like um, everything that you see here was made in China. I'm a consumer. Um, okay. Um, okay. So those are the ultimate decision makers, but okay, this is political science language. They're the principles. They don't decide directly. They have agents or intermediaries um, for U.S. citizens. And who are the primary intermediaries? They're United States Congress. And there's the U.S. president. That's it. Okay. Okay, so now who decides? I'm, so I'm going to tell you this is political. This is high school political science with a little uh, newspaper reading. So who decides? So you look that up. The United States does not have a, it's one of the few states that does not have a uh, state religion. But actually it does. The U.S. Constitution is our state religion. It's the one thing everybody reveres. That's not my observation. It's a famous historian and political scientist. So the U.S. Constitution is very clear. The Congress decides. The U.S. Congress decides. And indeed, if you look at history, um, before 1934, the Congress did decide. So if you look at the, the names of the tariffs, they're the Gorman-Wilson tariff. There's the Hoot-Smalley tariff. Those guys are congressmen and senators. They're not, they're not named after presidents. So the Congress decided the most the president could do would veto it. He usually didn't. So uh, the Constitution worked. 
Now, now you should ask yourself, what is a constitution? So here's what a political scientist would say. It's a list of rules about who decides what when. Not necessarily written down in one place. So after 1934, um, not as a constitutional amendment, the Congress delegated more and more authority to the president and executive powers to, make, to set tariffs and make trade restrictions. They did that. Yeah, good. You doing okay? Okay. So they, de they delegated more and more power. We kind of asked, why did they do that? They did that. Okay. So why? So there's, there's a constitutional change. You could, if, you were, if you were melodramatic and you like soap operas, you would say there was a constitutional revolution that happened quietly. Um, why? Well, before, before 1934, tariffs were a tremendous headache for Congress. Um, there was lobbying, extensive lobbying. Um, anytime you impose a tariff increase or reduction, there were conflicting interests. Some people wanted them increased. Some people wanted them reduced. Those people flooded the Congress. And, uh, and you could go read the, the testimony. They got longer and longer. Um, the congressmen got more and more frustrated. And, and they, um, they kind of got fed up with this. Furthermore, the United States uh, was in a kind of a weak position in bargaining with uh, other countries because you're bargaining with 535 people who might change their con composition when there's an election. So um, U.S. was viewed as a very unreliable bargainer. Um, but who, who cared? Before 1934, it was America first, really, in tariff policy. We were a high-tariff country. So we weren't interested. And guess what? We weren't the most efficient producers in the world um, until World War II. So there was a lot of competition from abroad, from Germany, from, uh, from Great Britain, from other. We weren't, we weren't the leaders. Okay. So we, we, didn't, we didn't want to open up. Okay. So why? Before 1934, Cong terrorists caused Congress a lot of difficulty, lobbying, log rolling, study political science. After 1934, Congress decided it wanted lobbyists to annoy the president and the executive party. Uh, um, executive departments instead of the Congress. There's a typo. They wanted to put the pressure on, on, and it worked. That's where most of the lobbying now is. Furthermore, after 1934, for various reasons, a great American, Cordell Hull, Secretary of, Secretary of State under President Roosevelt, who believed, along with Adam Smith, that he believed that international trade was a force for good because if people trade, they don't want to shoot each other. He thought it was a force for peace, and he believed it. So led by Cordell Hull and an increasing number of other people, Congress, uh, Cordell Hull wanted to open up the United States for trade, and I'll tell you some of the reasons he did later. So he thought delegate, Congress thought delegation to the president would increase the bargaining power of the U.S. in international trade negotiations. You centralize in one person, and you delegate it and make it sure. And, okay, and the trust is, this is a constitutional amendment. You have the Congress has the view that the president is the one person who has the national interest in mind, whatever that means, and not local interest in mind. 
And guess what? The president should usually be, be a person that's a better statesman, more elevated, speaks English better than most congressmen. That, and that, that was a view. Okay, so, um, so one message is when you delegate to an executive and there's elections, uh, be careful about who somebody tells me this. Be careful what you want. Okay, so now the I'll, so here's going to go fast. Purposes of trade tariff policy. What are the purposes? Well, tariffs for revenues, tariffs to restrict imports, and threats to tally, uh, retaliate against foreign trade. So now I'm going to tell you some. I'm going to tell you some history, uh, telling how these were used. Um, oh, so who wants these things? So just think of a society with interests. So who wants tariffs for revenues? Go back to the history of the United States. So at the beginning, it's, it's fascinating. Um, the United States actually had two constitutions. Before the U.S. Constitution, we had another, I would say it's a constitution, called the Articles of Confederation. It looked like a lot like the European Union. It was a center that had very limited ability to tax. But after the Revolutionary War, the American War of Independence, the United States financed that war with 13 independent states, the original 13 states, issuing debts. And the central government, it's like Brussels, issuing a bunch of debts. And guess what? Um, the central government piled up lots of debt, um, but didn't have the uh, resources it, had, it didn't have the authority to tax. The old constitution said the central government couldn't tax at all. This is Ronald Reagan's dream. It's a central government that can't tax and therefore can't spend and can't borrow. And it's great for everybody unless you are a creditor of the United States government. So there were various creditors that held U.S. government debt um, and uh, that debt was going at 10 or 20 cents on the dollar. Worse than Argentina today. And um, part of the reason, a big part of the reason the U.S. Constitution was formed was a new federal government was formed that had very big power to tax. And instead of the states, 13 states, having their own tariffs, states can't impose tariffs. They could under the Articles of Confederation, and a central government couldn't. Under the Constitution, the U.S. gets the power to tax. And why? And Alexander Hamilton and George, Walsh, uh, George Washington are up front. They say, we want this power to tax because we want to pay off our creditors. Actually, they were patriots. They believed in the United States. They lent to the United States. A deal is a deal. Um, so the first U.S. Congress gets, to, gets together, and they impose big tariffs. And about 50% of those tariffs are used to... Uh, pay off the debt, service the debt. So that debt that was going at 10 and 20 cents on the dollar went to like 80 and 90 cents on the dollar under Alexander Hamilton. That's in the Broadway play. That part's right. Okay. So that's why we had tariffs. Here's another reason. Um, okay. So that's the dominant reason for tariffs um, for the first uh, for the first uh, 12 years of our country. Then, um, and then tariffs kind of went very low. Um, so then, here's another reason for tariffs, completely different. It's to restrict imports. Um, 
So what this does is this creates uh, conflicts between commercial uh, importers and domestic exporters. Both of them don't like the tariffs, but inefficient domestic manufacturers competing with efficient foreign producers, they want them. Okay? And then finally, another reason for tariffs is uh, it's all a bluff. I don't know, if you play cards, what, what's a bluff? I don't know. But it's a threat to taliate against foreign trade restrictions. And it's the people who want tariffs for this reason are free traders. So go read what President Trump said in Canada. Is he T-man or is he free trade man? Uh, it's kind of interesting. Um, okay. So I'm going to tell you about the history of U.S. trade policies and their purposes. This is kind of a trend. And, and this is all going to be who wants what, and we have our tools. Between 1790 and 1860, the only reason for uh, raising uh, tariffs was to raise revenues. That was the only reason. That was the dominant reason. And I have to tell you, before 1860, um, we had a north and we had a south and we had, we had, we had slavery. And, and the uh, slave states were very important. And uh, they were low-tariff states. And they would go along with tariffs so long as you needed federal revenues. But before 1860, um, the United States, it's a, it's a poor a country in which there's no welfare state. Just think of that. There's no welfare state. There's no uh, state retirement system. And there's no Medicare or Medicaid. Why? Uh, people don't retire. They die when they're 45. You're an old man at 45 or woman. So that takes care of the social security system. Uh, now let's turn to doctors. Uh, you don't really want to go to a doctor. Um, uh, you don't want the state to do that. If you don't believe me, read about the final days of George Washington and the uh, state-of-the-art medicine that was applied to him called leeches. Okay, so you don't know. So, so we were a very small country. And guess what? In, in 1836, we completely paid off the federal debt. Um, and we have very low expenditures. There's nothing to spend on. So we reduced tariffs. But then guess what happened? There's a big political change. Okay, so now there, all the time, there's a bunch of people in the North that actually want tariffs. They're inefficient producers. Uh, one famous person is named Pig Iron Kelly. He's a famous person. He has a very famous child. Pig Iron Kelly. Guess what he produced? He produced pig iron. And he was an advocate of high tariffs. So Pig Iron Ter Kelly and his pals could not get tariffs through um, until the Civil War. And in the Civil War, the South left. And they didn't get to vote. And at the beginning of the Civil War, uh, Pig Iron Kelly and his friends. Oh, well, we need some revenues for the war, but who cares about that? We want protection. So they raised tariffs. And they kept tariffs high, basically, from 1860 to 18, 1934. With a small, with a small, uh, there's a blip. There's a little blip. But the big trend is they're really high. And so what's happening is the United States is not, the United States does not have the attitude that we can produce uh, better than uh, other countries. We're not the most efficient. Uh, Britain's more efficient. The Germans work too hard, and they're too efficient, and we don't want to trade with them. That's kind of the attitude. And um, 
and that prevails. Now, there are people in the United States who think we should trade with the Germans, like some of my ancestors who came from Germany and, and actually were consumers. They liked German knives and things like that, but they were in the minority. Okay, so let's fast forward. Now, now there's a lesson in this from history. If you read about, about history, um, read about World War I, which is a, a disaster, because everybody who went into that war lost, absolutely everybody, including the United States. And nobody anticipated what the results were going to be. Um, empires fell, and the ones that didn't fall, like the British Empire, were terribly weakened. Actually, look where we are. Um, we're the events in World War II, World War I, things would look different if there wasn't a World War I, for better or worse. Okay, so completely unanticipated um, consequences. The Habsburg Empire fell. The Turkish Empire fell. The German Empire fell. The British Empire was weakened. Um, and there were big changes in the United States that went from being um, a non-colonialist, um, isolationist power to get into the world. And then there was one other thing. Relative technologies changed. The United States became as productive as the best European countries. And then during World War II, the United States surpassed them. So the United States did not need protection. And, and, and if you read, um, Joseph Stalin commented on this. The United States, he's, he's a dedicated communist. He thought he knew how to organize an economy. But he said, um, he, said he knew how to organize an economy. But when he needed guns, and tanks during World War II, where do you think he got them? Um, so and he said that, U.S. is a machine, and it was. So the United States comes out of World War II and says, we can out-compete out anybody. And there's a shift. You know, the workers who work for those companies, and the steel manufacturers, we're the best steel producers, auto producers, aircraft producers, everything. And guess what? We're the best educators in the, in the world. Why? Because the Germans and the Italians kicked out a bunch of their guys and they came to the United States. Uh, we let them in. Okay, so after World War II, it's a different game. The United States' dominant interests want trade to be opened up. So it's at that point that the Congress delegates more and more power to the president and says, use it to break open foreign markets. And we play hardball. Um, and uh, now, we did it in a gentlemanly, uh, dignified way, sort of. Uh, but there were threats, and, and uh, we cracked open a bunch of markets. Not completely. So there's tariffs and trade barriers come. There's blips. There's threats. Look, both President Bush's, both President Bush's, um, President, President Bush number two threatened trade uh, uh, steel tariffs. I signed some petition against him. He didn't really mean it. Uh, and it worked. He got, he got other countries to... So that's our history. Bunch of threats. Were they, were they bluffs? I'm going to have to talk... There's great economic theorists and political science here. I actually don't know what a bluff is, um, mathematically. Shouldn't be using the word. You know, is it something that you're not really going to do? Or Anyway, we'll come back to that. Okay, so that's the history. So that's what happened. Um, and when the United States got... Um, we broke open markets because we thought we could outproduce other people. And if you kind of think about 
Now, here's, here's another thing. There's various people in the U.S. government that say, I'm just reading the newspaper, they say China's taking advantage of the United States with various ways. But think that hard. Think, think hard. It's not the United States government that's trading with China. Those are contracts written by greedy Chinese businessmen and greedy American businessmen who are making deals that, given whatever constraints they think, they think they're the best deals for the shareholders. So those were voluntarily, so you could ask kind of taking advantage. It's, it's tricky. Um, okay, so. Okay, so now I'm, gonna, I'm just going to end because I said I'm going to sort of, um, that's the story. Trend went down, the trend's down. There were those interests. Um, and you could ask yourself, the question you have to ask is what changed? You think the trend's going to change, what changed? Um, and economists like to talk, economists, economic theorists have this, and political scientists have this great thing, cheap talk. Um, you know, ultimately, um, actually, and there's experts here on that, um, but, you know, the basic line of political scientists is like, you're quite right. You talk all you want. I want to watch, look at your actions. Watch what you do as a function of your history and your interests. Okay, so finally, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up something that's anathema or challenging to a rational expectations person. And when you read history, you know, when you, okay, this is, this is the way social scientists work. It's the way physicists work. You take your model, um, you get completely inside it, and you act as if it's true, and you ask what implications there are. So I've kind of taken you inside Douglas Irwin's head and told you how he organized history. Okay. And, you know, his story about basically everybody understands how the economy works and they have their own interests. I, I want high tariffs. I know they're bad for you. I don't care about you that much. They're good for me. And, you know, that, that's what's going on. We both understand this. Not kidding yourself. I'm not going to try to tell you tariffs are good for you because they're not. Okay, that's that's the it's 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 differences in interests, not in not in beliefs about the way the world works. Okay, so now I'm going to challenge this, and then I'll then I'll stop. Okay, so then, and this is the way scientists always do: take their model, give it the best shot, compare it to the data, and then what they do is they uh, this goes back to the the philosopher Descartes: you play devil's advocate. It's actually it's in those equations with Lars Hansen at the beginning. And entropy, you say, what if you had the wrong view of the world? And you're interpreting the model, you're interpreting the data, and you're completely missing something. And then Descartes' evil agent is trying to fool you, He's trying to take your view of the world and screw you up. Okay, so so control theorists and uh, mathematicians do that when they when they want to stress test their model. It's an intelligent way to stress test. Okay, so here's goes. I'm going to talk about misunderstandings. So my friends in the rational expectations community would say, Sergeant has gone soft. He's gotten even older. He has a slide saying, misunderstandings, miscalculations, and unintended consequences. And probably have gone soft. So here's, so I want to tell you about some history, some U.S. history. And this is warnings about interests that I think some very important figures, and they were smart people. James Madison, 
and Thomas Jefferson. So the United States trade embargo and trade restrictions in 1807 to 1812. Okay, so I said that this book by this book by Douglas Irwin starts in 1776. Well, nothing starts. Nothing's 1776 isn't the beginning of history. The founding framers of the United States, that you know, they were 40 years, they were old in 1776, and they lived through some stuff. What are the things that they lived through? Is they were colonies of the United, they were colonies of Great Britain, and many of them were they were uh, traders, traders. They were commercial people, okay, and uh, and they were low tax people. They didn't like being taxed, and they actually had a sweetheart deal from Britain. Britain was Britain was giving them lots of benefits, taxing them very lightly. Okay, so Britain starts raising a little bit taxes, and the American actually they do various things, um, and the American commercial interests don't like this. Partly because some of the American, some of our our founding fathers are smugglers; they're making a lot of money by smuggling, and they don't like it when Britain changes things to make it uh, easier to do legitimate trade rather than smuggling because they're putting the smugglers out of business. So th- these guys have these interests. And what they do is they come up with the idea that um, we can really hurt the British manuf- manufacturers by imposing a, an embargo on them, not trading with them, and we'll get the, uh, the British uh, uh, commercial interests to uh, convince Parliament to change its mind. And guess what? It worked a few times. So people like Thomas Jefferson saw this, and they thought embargoes were really great. Fast forward. Um, Jefferson gets to be president. And he has the idea, um, okay, so he's a small government person, and um, uh, Britain is doing various things. To, uh, Britain's a big power, and the United States is a very weak power. You know, Britain has the biggest, uh, ar- it has the biggest, it has a great army. It has the biggest, most powerful navy in the world. The U.S. has no navy. It's got like five ships. And, it, and, they, and why do they have those ships? It doesn't have any because Thomas Jefferson didn't want any more ships. So what he thought was, we have a lot of power over Britain because we're trading with Britain. Britain is our main trading powder, partner. And Britain, this is all in Douglas Irwin. Britain is our main source of revenues because the tariffs that we have on British trade, they're funding the federal government. Okay, so, so we're really imp- Britain's really important to us. We're not very important to Britain. Britain's the biggest power in the world. They're trading with everybody. We're like 10 or 15% of their trade. They're 80% of our trade. Not being able to count very well, math's important. Um, Jefferson and Madison get the ideas that let's do the embargo again. We're really going to hurt Britain. So what we do is they completely cut off uh, the embargo. They tell Americans uh, in New England, it almost causes a civil war. They tell New Englanders, they put, a, they put an embargo, we cannot trade with Britain. Cut it off completely. And if you, look at, if you look at our trade statistics, they completely drop. And this goes on. And guess what? Britain barely notices. Um, it makes our fiscal affairs terrible because we, we, we can't fund it. And, and, and we do this more and more. And then um, it eventually leads to... Um, it doesn't work, and eventually um, there's some young guys like Henry Clay in the West say, this isn't working, let's go to war. 
So that's how the War of 1812 started. The United States declared that war. It started that war, and uh, Madison got backed into it, and we almost lost it. Uh, we very, you know, it's very, it was fatal. This was a disaster. It was based on a misunderstanding of the, how powerful the United States could be in hurting ourselves, but hurting somebody else more. Um, I think uh, people should look at that. I'll give you one other example. Um, you can find a number of examples like this. Uh, the United States, and this rings true, in the United States in the early 18, 1970s, 1970s, when I was your age, not your age, but your age, <laughs> okay, 1970s, okay, the United States, uh, guess what, we decide, uh, we get president, it's a Republican president, President Nixon, enough with these multilateral trade arrangements. By the way, the students in my class know multilateral trade is everything. Bilateral trade, don't look bilateral, look multilateral. That's what Adam Smith said. My students tell me that. Okay, but President Nixon said, we had enough of this multilateral thing. Let's have some bilateral trade arrangements and we'll get some um, tariffs on foreign oil down. So guess what? We make these sweetheart deals with two or three countries where we get tariffs down on, on foreign oil. So we had big tariffs on foreign oil, which, which for s completely stupid reasons. It's because the Texans wanted them. Okay. N they said it was national security, but it had nothing to do with national security because um, the Pentagon had an exemption. And it was, uh, it was all about Texas oil. Okay, so we get some of these trade agreements, and guess what? There's just a couple countries that are there. Well, we upset a whole bunch of other countries. So guess what they do? Well, they say we're upset. We're going to form something called OPEC. So they form a cartel. And then in 1973, and, and, and the American administration's asleep and the Congress is asleep. This cartel acts and it imposes a, 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 this various geopolitics, big increase in prices, and it really hurts the United States. And they do it twice in the 1970s. That didn't have to happen. That was an unintended consequence. Okay, and finally, a misunderstanding. This is just about whether you read. You know how to read and respect economic um, research. There's, there's an, a, a large a volume of painstaking economic research, completely non-ideological, ask the question, why have manufacturing jobs disappeared in the United States? That's the question. And there's kind of some leading candidates. One is competition from abroad. That's one thing. Competition from China and various other countries for steel. And there's another reason, technological change. That, that means the way you make steel looks different now than it does in 1975. So people have done studies and they say that the, the best estimates are of 10 jobs lost in manufacturing in the United States, eight of them are for, for technology. They're not coming back. At, at, at most, 10 are due to uh, foreign competition. Eight are due to technology, and at most two are due to. So those jobs aren't coming back. Those tariffs are not going to come back. They're just going to um, hurt people like me that buy at Walmart. So, so misunderstandings. Now, notice I've, de I've deviated from everybody understanding the way the world works. And, um, and uh, okay, so you could say, so those are dubious, dubious claims. Low-cost imports take more U.S. steel 
jobs than they create, just not true. Um, Low-cost imports actually create lots of jobs in the United States. Different kinds of jobs. They're better jobs. And they're protecting uh, domestic industry, saves and creates U.S. jobs. That's just, that's just not right. So, uh, and now you can ask, look at, look at what some uh, people in both political parties in the United States campaign on. And is that, is, now you kind of, for a rational expectations guy, this is, this is puzzling. Is it because they're foolish and uninformed, or is it because they're devious? I don't answer questions. So finally, I'll just say, this is a fine book, and it makes you, it makes you proud to be a political scientist or an economist or, or an historian, and it's, um, or a scholar. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.